I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Before we kick off the show, if you're a fan of History Hack, please do what you can to support the show. We completely get that not everyone is able or willing to dig into their pockets. Times are hard. But by dropping a like, subscribing on Twitter and YouTube, and importantly, leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts, you can help the programme grow and reach more people. If you're interested in becoming a supporter, go to patreon.com forward slash history hack, where you'll find perks from secret Facebook groups to early release material. If you just want to leave us a one-off tip, go to co-fee.com forward slash history hack. The links are in the description. And whatever form your kind support takes, know that we are massively grateful. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to today's History Hack. Lockie's here with me today. Lockie, uh, we've got two clickbaity things up for discussion today, and that is gangsters and Nazis. What's the context? It's, it, it's like, how can we squish things that we want to talk you know, together? Um, yeah, we've got Michael Benson. Uh, with us, Michael is the author of uh, "Gangsters versus Nazis," as the as the title is. But how Jewish mobsters battled the Nazis in wartime America, and he's, he's co-authored other books on the mafia, including uh, "Mafia Hitman" and "Lord High Executioner." Michael, how are you, sir? I'm doing fine. How are you doing? Uh, do you know what? I guess you went to a publisher and went, "I've got a book for you," and they went, "Oh yeah, what is it?" And you went, "I've got gangsters." And Nazis in the same. I can sell this book in three words. (laughs) (laughs) Did they lie? And it's not a personal record for me. I once sold a book with two words, and they were killer twins. (laughs) So you literally just went to your publisher, Gangsters and Nazis, and they went, done. Uh, Yes. You you, you, you sort of start with gangsters, and they went, "Mm," and (laughs) yes, Nazis. Brilliant. Perfect. Yeah. Right. Oh, should we start with the rationale behind the book? How do you shoehorn these two things together? And what made you want to tell this story? Well, I, you know, the instant that I heard that there was an organized effort to disrupt and deter gatherings of German Americans celebrating Hitler's philosophies at the end of the Great Depression, uh, I knew it was a compelling story that needed to be told especially in this day and age when perhaps we've forgotten the horrors of fascism. Um, mm-hmm. I'd known parts of the story uh, from my reading of the 26 volumes of Warren Commission testimony, uh, biographies of various mobsters of the era, word of mouth, but I didn't realize how organized the anti-Nazi movement was in 1938 America um, and that it involved Jewish gangsters and their boxer friends. 
uh, until my agent, Doug Grad, alerted me to an article by Robert Rockaway in Tablet Magazine, which introduced me to Judge Nathan Perlman, who's the true hero of my book. Uh, he was a Polish-born um, New York City kid. He attended NYU Law. Um, he became a U.S. congressman, and he was, he was a fellow who liked a good time. He would walk into a bar and say, I was one of the congressmen that voted to repeal prohibition, and everybody would buy him a drink. <laughs> so, and, so in 1938, the, the Nazis are marching in the streets of New York. They're goose-stepping down 86th Street. They're disrupting other uh, legitimate uh, celebrations. They're going on outdoors. They, one award-giving ceremony had to be moved indoors because the Bowling Green was filled with Nazis. Judge Perlman was sick of it, sick of the anti-Semitic rhetoric that was being shouted and all of the anger towards Jews. Uh, so he's in a bar one night and he snaps his fingers. He says, I got an idea. And he calls Meyer Lansky, the Jewish gangster, and says, uh, could you teach the anti-Semites who are goose-stepping down our streets that maybe being a Nazi in America is dangerous? And Lansky said, you know, I'll get Murder, Inc. to take care of it for you. And But Perlman couldn't agree to that because he had a rabbi sitting next to him at the time and said, well, no, no killing. And as Lansky later put it, we didn't kill him. We just marinated him. And they were brass knucks and sawed off pool cues. And whenever there was a meeting, the gangsters would rush in and bust it up. And pretty soon, the numbers of people showing up at these meetings was way down. So that, that's, that, that's basically, well, the, the other thing that really attracted me to the story and brings out the anarchist in me maybe, is that it explores the space between what is legal and what is just. Because there were no hate speech laws in America at the time. Uh, so these guys could say whatever they wanted. They talk about the Jewish problem and how to take care of it. And it was just giving people the willies, but it was legal. And of course, the good guys in my book are completely outside the law. They're violent and, and punching people in the nose and sending people to the emergency room. All right. So how, how big were these Nazi movements in the U.S.? Because, I mean, I, I think there, there must have been, a, of course, a lot of German or migration from you know, Germany to America in the, in the 19th and maybe, I guess, even early 20th centuries. And kind of our wheelhouse, me and Alex, is the First World War. And we know how, you know, how big the kind of German vote was uh, in, in the United States prior to the First World War and how kind of war with Germany was actually a tricky thing. So fast forward into the 1930s and, and how, how big, how strong, how much traction uh, did these Nazi movements have and how much of a threat did they pose? Well, I... I, estimates, my estimate, I guess, is there probably were about 100,000 German Americans who were into Hitler. Um, not all of them went to meetings, but they were sympathetic to their homeland and they didn't see necessarily as Hitler being a danger to America. Hard to imagine now, but in 1938, most Americans were against going to war against Germany. Uh, he conquered most of Europe and still Mr. and Mrs. America felt they didn't have a dog in the fight. Um, Jewish Americans saw it differently. They knew that horrible things were happening in Europe, that their relatives were being rounded up and no one was coming back. So Jewish Americans were the first to realize that war against Hitler was necessary and inevitable and that the war for the hearts and minds of Americans had already begun. Um, our story takes place uh, near the end of the Great Depression 
and it felt like nobody had any money. And it was very easy for these, uh, the Nazis to scapegoat the Jews. Uh, they would say that the Jews controlled all of the money, and that's why you don't have any, which must have been quite a shock to the Jewish ragman in Newark, New Jersey, whose horse just dropped dead in the middle of the street. Um, yeah, he didn't have all the money. Mm. And on the other side of the Atlantic, on your side, uh, you know, Hitler is, is just his loathsome anti-Semitic philosophies uh, are seen as patriotic to his homeland. Now, the, uh, the, the guys who are running the meetings, the, the, the German-American Bund and the, the Silver Legion were the two big Nazi organiza organizations in America. Um, and a lot of them had, were Hitler-esque. You know, they had the little toothbrush mustaches and they would give speeches with their arms waving, spittle spewing. And, it's very uh, distasteful, isn't it? Yeah, and, and there was nothing anybody could do about it. As without breaking the law, which is why Judge Perlman got a bunch of Jewish guys who didn't care about the law that much. Or yeah. at all. Oh, it's a genius idea, really. So what I mean, like, look, he's screwing up his face and so am I. I mean, this is yuck. This is Nazis on the streets of the United States. To what extent? I mean, how, how many of them were there and how big is this this horrible like, how big were the marches? I'm, I'm kind of yeah. thinking about this because I'm thinking about sort of similar things happening in, in London, for example, with the British Union of fascists, where you could get you know, a few thousand of these scumbags marching down the streets and they would march into Jewish areas. And we end up with you know, events like the Battle of Cable Street. You know, the, the, the things like that happen in the States? Absolutely. Yeah, they, they would fill the arenas that they, they booked. Uh, probably most notably, they filled Madison Square Garden in New York. Um, and at that occasion, you know, our gangsters couldn't get in because by that time they'd smartened up to the fact that there was going to be disruptions. But one lone unemployed Jewish plumber named Izzy Greenbaum went up on the stage shouting, you know, Hitler's got one ball and unplugged, <laughs> unplugged the microphone so that the speaker couldn't speak. And there was a scuffle on the stage. And the next day, the story was not that the Nazis all love Hitler even though you know, he's, he's anti-Semitic. But the story was, you know, Jewish plumber shows them. You know, Meyer Lansky sent a big fruit basket to, to the family the next day. No. But yeah, there were, there, were, there were marches in the streets all across America, from coast to coast. And pro most upsetting to me was the Nazi youth camps. They would have summer camps with swimming and playing ball and speeches about Hitler and the, the German American kids would go there. They wouldn't even know what it was all about until they got there and went into the meeting room and saw the big swastika. It just, Oh yeah. 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 Ugh. It just, it makes you, <laughs> how do you spell that? Yeah. How, just wretch. Yuck. <laughs> Let, let's, let's move. Lucky. Let's move away from those scumbags and move on to the story of, of the Jews that become involved in this, because I love this. I love that this guy looks around and goes, right. Who's got skin in this game and does not give a flying F about the legality of getting involved. So the, the, the background of some of the characters involved in this, because I, I must admit, when I think about you know, kind of gangs or mafia fighting the Nazis, I'm into the Italian-American community and I'm thinking of people like Lucky Luciano, 
Um, and kind of the Jewish element to this is is one that I, yeah, I know very little about. So let's let's talk about those if we can. Well, Lansky was Lansky was Lucky Luciano's uh, right hand man. He was he was the accountant for the mafia. He would say, and he pretty much came up with the five family system that kept peace and order in the New York mob. Um, and he ran Murder, Inc., who, as the name implies, they're professional killers, which is interesting because absolutely no one gets killed in my book. There are zero murders, a couple of close calls, you know, guys with fractured skulls, but everybody pulls through. Uh, no knives, no guns. And footing the bill for the, for the Nazi wars in Newark was Longies Willman. And he made his million selling bootleg liquor during Prohibition. He was briefly the boyfriend of movie star Gene Harlow. Uh, and he was a hero in Newark's Jewish neighborhoods because in his youth, he had defended the Jewish boys from the Gentile bullies. And he knew, and this is true in Chicago and, and New York as well, the, the Jewish gangsters had friends who were boxers, Jewish boxers. And ex-boxers would often become muscle for the mob. It was a job they could do. And like the head of the, the Minutemen anti-fascist campaign in, uh, in Newark was a fellow named Nat Arno. He was an ex-pro-boxer who fought 26 times in 1926. Uh, that would be every, Friday, every other Friday night for a whole year. And apparently he still had his marbles. And he put together a gang of hoods and boxers. And they had multiple riots in, in Newark, uh, in the Schwaben Hall, in uh, the German Cultural Center in Irvington, New Jersey, in the uh, German-American Bund Hall in Union City, New Jersey. Uh, there was Putty Hinkus, A.B. Bain, uh, Hyman the Weasel Kugel. Oh, Benny, I love that name. Benny <laughs> Bouncing Boy Levine. They called him Bouncing Boy because he bounced on his to toes when he fought early in his career. And they called him Bouncing Boy later in his career because he bounced off his butt and he was knocked down all the time. Uh, we, in, the, in, the, in the Midwest, oh, we, had, we had Davey the Jew Berman, which I don't, I don't think that nickname would be imaginative. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine uh, the wokes now? And, and of course, out on the West Coast, we had Mickey Cohen and Bugsy Siegel, who were friends of Meyer Lansky's and also knew Judge Perlman from their days in New York. I just let's stick with New York because what you've done brilliantly is break this down into regions. Um, right. And for me, Gangs of New York, I, Dead Rabbit is my favorite bar in Manhattan. Uh, five points, uh, Chinatown now. Love wandering around there and imagining it all. Gangs of New York is a thing. Um, and how big is the Jewish influence within New York gangs and how do they respond to the threat posed by these Nazi organizations? Well, there was organized crime in all immigrant ethnicities. Um, I, th I think the, the Italians probably got most of the press because they were born out of, you know, the mafia in, in Sicily. So they had a tradition. But being a gangster for an immigrant in, in America at that time was fairly common because legitimate uh, routes to success were limited to them. Uh, Jews were only allowed to have a certain number of jobs in America in 1938. If you didn't want to be a tailor or a butcher, you, know, you were out of luck. And so 
yeah, they worked and they, and they worked largely hand in hand. You don't have a lot of Irish gangs against Italian gangs, against Jewish gangs. It's not like West Side Story. Uh, it's more. Well, no, um, I'm thinking of like Monk Eastman as well. And I don't think he right, gave right. a damn about what ethnicity was someone. If you could punch someone in the face and do it, well, <laughs> well, he well, exactly. didn't care where you came from. That's exactly right. And there, there were, you know, mafia guys who thought that all gangsters should be Sicilian. They should be able to trace their routes back, back to Castellamar. Um, but as by 1938, I think we're into a second generation of these guys and they're more inclusive. Now, one of the, the gangs I've written most about is uh, the Gallo Boys in Brooklyn. You know, they had, uh, they had Syrians and, and Irish guys. You know, they had a, they had a little person. There was no, uh, you didn't have to trace your roots back to Sicily anymore to, in order to do a job. As long as you made money, you were good. So what did specifically these New Yorkers, how did they take on these Nazis? Well, they, first of all, some of the guys in Murder Inc. weren't great with their fists. Uh, they were used to guns. So Lansky took them to Gleason's boxing gym, which still exists. And I've been there, throws dollar in the bucket you can watch guys spar all day if you want to and taught him how to how to fight because uh and then the big riot in manhattan took place in yorkville which was 86th street germantown in in new york and they'd filled an arena and there was a the lectern with the that swastikas there's usually a picture of george washington and a picture of hitler side by side I'm sure Washington and, would have appreciated that, right? Yeah, 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 right. Um, and they would equate Hitler to what the founding fathers meant all along. And some of this sounds kind of familiar from recent, you know, political history in the United States. Which is another. It does. I'm just laughing at Lockie's face because he's just like, ugh. Yeah, my, my, my poker face is not strong in, in no. situations like this. Yeah. So... But and the big the big one was uh, it, they they had a big meeting, big rally, beers served, you know beer wenches in their little St. Pauli girl outfits running around, and Murder Inc. comes charging in with their brass knucks. One guy, I think the, the worst injury at that riot was a broken leg because they tossed the guy out the window, uh, and he he landed on Eighty Sixth Street poorly. And the papers the next day said nothing about Jewish gangsters because Lansky gave them all American Legion hats. So they went in there, said, we're American Legion, busted up the place, and they dropped the hats on the street and disappeared into the night. And the next day, the American Legion got credit. And this happened I love, that's in, like in other cities as well. That's brilliant. That's like a legitimizing of it, isn't it? If they've got those hats on... Then they've been to war. So you can't, if they want to punch you, if they want to biff you up, who's going to criticize them? That's right. That's right. And I, one, a thing that stri strikes me as fascinating, I think it was Nat Arno from Newark. He, when after Pearl Harbor, he enlisted and he fought in Europe. He was hit the beaches on D Day, marched all the way to Berlin. And he says on several occasions, he ran into German POWs being marched in the other direction that he recognized from street fights in Newark, New Jersey in 1938. So, and, and one of the reasons I think this story isn't better known 
is that Pearl Harbor changed everything so rapidly that the, the story went away and everybody's role changed. These guys who were speeching, who were, who were giving speeches about hating Jews and, and how to solve that problem, uh, all of a sudden were committing sedition. They were plotting to overthrow the U.S. government. Some of them were jailed. Some of them fled to Germany where they met their own fates there. Oh, not always nice. The, the fighters themselves, a lot of them were drafted into the U.S. Army. Um, the, the Jews fought in, in, uh, in Europe. And the German-Americans were usually sent to the Pacific to fight the Japanese. So everybody, everybody's role changed overnight. And I think people more or less forgot about the, the wars against the Nazis in American cities that had happened a couple of years earlier. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. That's interesting. Now, that's something I've never considered before. Sorry, I was going to say the fact that there's nothing more than a broken leg makes this just a brilliant story because you can laugh as much as you want and just enjoy. (laughs) Oh, that's right. Yeah, I I wrote it in a style meant to entertain. Yeah, Uh, yeah. The the fight scenes are are told, you know, in, in great detail, very cinematically. Um, so hopefully people who might not necessarily be able to sit through a, a, a scholarly history book will read mine in one sitting because it's, it's going to be like, you know, latest edition of Captain America. Well, we all appreciate a Nazi getting thrown out of a window. But yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's absolutely, there are very few shades of gray here. Yeah. Yeah. The gangsters are the good guys. Nazis are the bad guys. Lockie, pick another city. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. Oh, gangsters. Chicago. Chicago. Yeah, in Chicago, the, the Jewish neighborhood is uh, Kedzie Avenue. And that's where the small shop owners, the restaurants, and the gangsters all function along that same strip. Uh, and we know much about the Chicago Nazi wars because the journalist Herb Brin, uh, whose dad owned a shop on Kedzie, as a young man, he hung out in the pool halls and fight clubs along that strip. Uh, the Chicago mob was controlled by Al Capone. He was in prison at the time. So Judge Perlman called his number one guy, who was Jake Greasy Thumb Guzik, 
a, the Jewish man who handled business while Scarface was away. Um, he contacted Sparky Rubenstein, who hung out at Davy Miller's Boxing Club. I love and, these names. The nicknames. They're absolutely <laughs> hilarious, aren't they? Yeah, and, and, yeah, no spoilers. Sparky went by another name. Um, and uh, did you read the book? Yeah, no, no. He, anyway, we don't want to spoil it for everybody. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, he was friends with Barney Ross. He was friends with Barney Ross, who was uh, a, a boxing champion near the end of his career. And they were making extra money running errands for Capone. Uh, Rubenstein scalped tickets. He went to events. And Herb Brin, who was fair complexioned and, and had lighter hair, uh, could pass for Gentile. And he was sent to infiltrate the German-American Bund. So when he found out where the secret meetings were going to be, he told Sparky, and the boys knew where to attack. Uh, and Bryn's personal battle against anti-Semitism began long before he was recruited to spy on Nazis. He once dragged a loudmouth anti-Semite off a Kedzie Avenue bus, beat him up thoroughly, now, up and down the block, they said, boom, 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 boom. Then he got back on the bus, which had waited, and everybody applauded. So he became known as he became known as fighter of the fascists and was still writing exposés about white supremacy groups when he was close to 80 years old. You know, I spoke to his sons. They're so proud of him. I just I love him already. I'm in love with him. But tell us also about Father Coughlin or Raven. Oh, boy. Well, America's number one anti-Semite was a Catholic priest. Nice. Uh, he, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Father Charles Edward Coughlin. He gave his sermons over the radio on Sunday afternoons, right between rhythmic ramblings and the design for dancing show. Uh, they called him the radio priest. He had a velvety soft voice, and he tenderly wrapped his hate speech in a warm security blanket of tone and comfort. Yeah. And in, in 1926, he built his own church, the Shrine of the Little Flower. And to support the church, they gave him free airtime. And after the stock market crashed, his message stopped being so much about you know, Jesus, the Lord, uh, and more about uh, the problems of having Jews with all the money. He said that he wasn't really anti-Jewish. He was anti-communist, but all Jews are communists. So it's the same thing. I mean, he's, uh, not, he's not covering himself in glory, is he? Eh, it's unclear if Coughlin was aware of the genocide underway, but he yeah. certainly knew about Kristallnacht, in yeah. which you know, Jewish neighborhoods were smashed yeah. and many of the residents were killed. He told... Uh, yeah, without a sense of irony, he said that many Jews in Germany had become powerful by using their talents to acquire positions in radio, on newspapers, and in international banking. The Jews, he said, were dangerous because of their solidarity. It was one for all with those people. So that I when love you that he's pressing be... them for infiltrating on radio when that's exactly what he's doing. Right, right, right. They, they, yeah, he didn't, yeah. yeah, no sense of irony in him at all. Yeah. <laughs> And he pleaded with FDR to pull American ambassadors out of all communist countries. And his ratings were through the roof. So when Judge Perlman got on the phone and started calling Jewish mobsters across the country, including Chicago, anti-Semitism was in the air. These, these are classic anti-Jewish tropes, aren't they? The kind of conspiracy and solidarity amongst yep. them and, yep. and, and money hoarding. I mean, it's, it's lazy bigotry, isn't it? It's just like, I'm going to jump on the bandwagon <laughs> of all the other ridiculous <laughs> I, shit that people have said. I don't know about what's tenacious bigotry. 
Um, <laughs> <laughs> he's not even had the courtesy to come up with anything new. Yeah. That's right. Um, I suppose that kind of, I mean, I've got a, a slightly different question, and I guess we've had kind of two elements uh, of it. Um, uh, my, my kind of thought was about support for the Jewish fighters or the, or the Jewish people themselves, possibly, is, is a better way of putting it. Uh, and, you know, the story about... Um, uh, her Bryn getting on the bus and getting a, a round of applause um, versus Father Coughlin and, and his virulent anti-Semitism. I mean, I, I guess it's a mixed bag in support uh, of the Jewish people. Is that, is, that, is that fair or does it skew one way or the other? Uh, I think that's fair. Uh, I, I think a poll at the time said that 10% of Americans, German or otherwise, felt that Jews should all go back where they came from. So uh, prejudice, all prejudice was pretty mainstream in 1938. We would be shocked. Um, I, I thought that the, the, one of the interesting things in, in the book had to do with Los Angeles because there was nothing in the world that Hitler wanted more than control of Hollywood, which was the world's greatest propaganda machine. Uh, he figured if he could control Hollywood, he could control the minds of Americans. And because the movies were shown around the world, achieve global domination, maybe even without firing a shot. So his plan was to organize the old money in Los Angeles, money that was there before the movie started, oil money, basically, and pit that against the new money, which were the Jewish heads of Hollywood studios. But the efforts didn't work. Uh, for one thing, the oil men were not all German. Some were. Many anti-Semites in the crowd, but they didn't have any organization. They didn't really have any real anger. They thought Hollywood was disgusting, but so what? You know, as long as the oil keeps coming out of my backyard, I don't care what they do, you know, in Hollywood. But under the leadership of a Jewish attorney named L.L. Lewis, the Nazis were infiltrated by Jewish men and women. Women were really important in this. Um, and they learned about, that the Nazis were planning to assassinate Jewish movie moguls and movie stars. And, and the plan failed largely because the Jewish infiltration was insidious. The Nazis never identified the moles. They lacked a strong leader at the time, and the handful who wanted the job distrusted the others. So what the Jewish moles did was they spread rumors, just constantly spread rumors that this one was plotting, plotting to stab this one in the back and vice versa, and pretty soon the Nazis disabled themselves with infighting. And this predated the gangster versus Nazis wars, which featured Mickey Cohen and Bugsy Siegel in charge. Now, Cohen was an ex-boxer who knew how to excel in a fight, you know, despite the no-kill rule. Siegel had more trouble. He was a shooter, and he only used his hands on women, he used to say. And uh, nice. so it was, more it was more difficult for him. And as perhaps you know, uh, Siegel was whacked in his girlfriend's house. I hope and, his uh, girlfriend whacked him after that comment. <laughs> Uh, apparently, uh, Bugsy and women got along okay. Uh, mm. uh, gangsters and women in general tend to, tend to something about the danger, and of course, the money makes them attractive. I guess so. Uh, this, <laughs> but I would like personally. You no. suppose? <laughs> but, I mean, if you get to hit them back, fair enough. I guess if that's your bag, and, and you're down with that, and you really want to spend their money, um. We could really go all over America with these stories, couldn't we, Lockie? Should we just get Michael, instead of leading him, Michael, give us a fight scene, the best 
fight anywhere a place we haven't mentioned so far happens during all of oh, this? Oh, boy. Well, I think that the best fight scenes are in Newark, New Jersey. And these, these were fairly early on. After the, the riot in New York, uh, Mayor LaGuardia of New York told the, the Nazis they couldn't meet anymore. No more uniforms, no more slogans, no more swastikas. You gotta, if you want to do that, you have to leave town. So they crossed the Hudson River and the wars continued in Newark, New Jersey. And uh, the Schwaben Hall was a major riot. The, uh, the Minutemen, as the Jewish gangsters called themselves after the, the American Revolution guys, um, they, they covered their faces with burnt cork and they started out by sneaking around behind the hall, get climbing a ladder and throwing a stink bomb in the window. This, this caused the Nazis you know, to, to try to flee. And as they were coming out, the gangsters were waiting for them and everybody got greeted with a knuckle sandwich. I just, hang on, we're, we're talking smash international jury and let's take the fight to our enemies. Oh no, it smells bad. Quick, let's leave. Yeah. run away it smells horrible <laughs> which just i mean who doesn't also love the trope of a wussy nazi running away yeah. from adversity having spouted all of their bullshit it's great it, in gangsters versus nazis the uh, the nazis tend to be very pink <laughs> <laughs> i don't think well i don't know maybe you can join i i was in a pub last night with josh levine and we formed a club whereby we're going to have special pin badges saying winning and you only get one after you've received hate mail from neo-nazis and both of us have that so i'm hoping all right now i'm oh, guessing I the only complaints you'll get about um making them look like a load of complete asses uh, is from this community so let me know if i do need to say oh, i'm people. eager to join the club yeah so I, what I, happened so they've just they they basically just waited outside and smacked them in the mouth as they come running away from the bad smell that's right that's right <laughs> it's, it's, it's oh somebody passed gas let's flee into the street um yeah. but, but I, I should i should say that i am catholic myself mm. and i Grew up in Rochester, New York, a uh, German-American. So when I was doing my research, I was pleased to learn that the German-American Bund had come through upstate New York and they'd had meetings in Buffalo that had broken up by a riot and one in Syracuse that was broken up by a riot. And they came to Rochester and nobody showed up. And I'd like to believe that's because my ancestors thought that, you know, Hitler was full of it. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, some of it could have been that by that time, word was out that people were getting punched in the nose. Don't go. Uh, but I, I, I think that I, I've looked into it a little more than that. And that the Rochester German-American uh, organizations really were, hey, don't go for this crap. You know, this, this is not your fatherland does, does not represent Hitler are not synonymous. So I think we've gone for we did New York because gangs of New York, Chicago, you have to do because it's full of gangsters. Um and we've done the Hollywood thing. What's a location that crops up in your book that you really wouldn't expect this stuff to be going down in? Minneapolis, Minnesota. <laughs> yeah, they're all really quite mild-mannered and nice, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah, it, it, and that was... The, 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 uh, the anti-Semites there were not from the German-American Bund. 
they were from the uh, the Silver Lodge, which was an organization headed by William Dudley Pelly. Um, he was a former screenwriter. Yeah, he probably could have gotten his job back if Hitler's plan had worked. Um, he claimed to have almost died and had been given instructions by the spirits to carry out the great Adolf Hitler's wishes. He survived the gangsters versus Nazis wars. In fact, he, out, of, out of all of the, the bad guys in my book, William Dudley Pelly seems to come out the least scathed. Um, he did some jail time for the sedition, but then he just went on to write about, he just switched to UFOs. So he had a third act. So barking mad then. Yeah, and the other, the other, I don't know if you, the Robert Durst, the, uh, the, the rich guy who was tried. Are you familiar with that name? Vaguely. Yeah. Okay. He, well, his victim that he was just convicted of killing, he just recently died, but he was convicted of killing Susan Berman, who was Davy, the Jew Berman's daughter. So that's a sad footnote to the story, but it was Davy, the Jew who fought against William Pelly's, uh, troops in uh, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. That's brilliant. And, it, and that just takes a, a very similar form to say the, the New York fights, does it? Is it was that a, a more like a coordinated well, uh, thing by the Jewish community? It, it, you know, it, the, yes. Well, yeah, the, the Jewish side was very similar, but I think the, the fascist side was was different in, in Minneapolis. It, was, it wasn't necessarily German-American. It was just anti-Jew. And that's why they, they were pro-Hitler. Really? For some reason, anti-Semitism was really, really strong in you know, the, the heartland of America. It's funny, because you, you wouldn't necessarily think there were that many Jewish migrants to that area, would you? I, I, you know, well, for... we're, we're into the second generation now, and a lot of New York Jews had moved west because you know they, they were tired of tenements in the Lower East Side of Manhattan, and they yeah, wanted to go where there was fresh air, American dream, have get a place with a little backyard. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, I kind of liken it to London a little bit um, in the sense that Jewish people, when they initially arrive, they move into the East End because that's where the sort of cheaper accommodation is. It's also where there's a bit of a community there for them already. And then they sort of establish themselves. And that's not really the Jewish area anymore. It's, it's more sort of North um, London. So it's a, a similar story. Uh, I guess, but you do get kind of hostility in those early days when they when they first arrive. Um, too, I just uh, wonder about kind of integration of of the Jewish people uh, and how that worked in the United States. Were there any kind of communities there already when the Jewish people arrived in in significant numbers? Uh, was there was there a Jewish neighborhood in Minneapolis before the Jews arrived? I'm yeah, sorry, or in New York, I guess. I'm not, I'm not sure. No. No, I, I don't think that there was. I mean, there were no Jewish pilgrims. Um, no, they, sure enough. <laughs> I, think, I think until the late 19th century, very, fair, very few Jewish people in North America. I think we've talked a lot about, understandably, we've talked a lot about Jews biffing up Nazis and it's been epic because who doesn't want to smack a Nazi in the face? Uh, do right. we have evidence of the other way around? Are there gangs which align themselves more with the Nazis? And if so, what motivates them? 
Well, there were no incidences of Jewish gangsters aligning themselves with the Nazis. Yeah. But there were, there were uh, Italian mobsters uh, who uh, aligned themselves with Mussolini. Uh, Mussolini had a, uh, a reputation of being anti-mafia because they were competing governments. You know, they did in, in Italy and Sicily. Uh, yeah. But when, when the New York mobster Vito Genovese was deported, he went, to, uh, he went back to Italy and chumming himself up with Mussolini. They, they become fast friends and start doing favors for one another. So when the, uh, when the, uh, the left-wing publisher, uh, Carlo Tresca in New York, uh, writes about Mussolini and ticks him off, Mussolini says to Vito Genovese, can you take care of that for me? And the next time that uh, Carlo Tresca goes out onto the street, corner of 14th Street and 5th Avenue, uh, a young thug named Carmine Galante whacks him. Well, Carlo Tresca, it was, it was big news at the time. He was a well-known anarchist, uh, probably a communist. And nobody hates a fascist as much as a communist. And Vito Genovese had Carmine Galante, went on to become a mob boss himself in later years. I happen to know this because book I'm working on right now. Um, and he, uh, he whacked Carlo Tresca right on a busy street in the downtown Manhattan on behalf of Mussolini. So I, I don't think Hitler himself ever aligned himself with any American gangsters. He was quite mm. kind of keen on getting hold of Clark Gable, though, wasn't he? <laughs> well, James, he wanted to to shoot all of the movie moguls and the more uh, noteworthy Jewish performers. I know Eddie Cantor was on the list of people to be assassinated. Um, you know, Louis B. Mayer, uh, Nick and Joe Skank, the, the guys who were... Who were Running low zinc and and uh, in Hollywood in general. It's epic. It's right up there with their plans to steal Nelson's column and move it to Berlin. <laughs> Everyone loves a, a flawed Nazi lunatic plan, don't they, Lockie? Well, there's there's quite a lot of oh, if the Nazis had done this, then they would have done done this uh, nonsense. That get I think his capital would have been Oxford. Is uh, is quite a nice one, really, really. Because Hitler was renowned for being scholarly and intelligent and not just a... Yeah, precisely. Or you have had something in common with Charles I. (laughs) Yeah, which everyone wants to align themselves with that imagery, don't they? Yeah. Um, Good. I mean, uh, kind of just returning to the gangs, I guess, aligning themselves um, with the Nazis. It's it's the the funny kind of... I'm I'm kind of hit by the kind of duality of the Catholic uh, side of things because... Mm. You have you know mafia involved in in going to Sicily and 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 helping the Allies with their invasion uh, as well. Well, that's, as... That's, that's Luciano. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, Luciano is absolutely an American. He's not siding with Mussolini. And so, by the time the Americans invaded, and, and I think British too, uh, invaded uh, Sicily and then Italy, all you had to do was drop Luciano's name and the people there would tell you where the Germans were hiding. So, so the, 
he and he also provided detailed maps so they would know where not to land and where there would be a good place to to get lots of equipment on shore uh they didn't count on the getting stuck in the mountains but uh the invasions went went pretty well Brilliant. and that was luciano's help yeah all right well this is i really like this i like all of this i like the kind of various different elements that tie in uh, together I, I like the kind of dualities in certain communities and i like fighting nazis uh, as well <laughs> just the punch-ups yeah have some of this um so yeah let's tell us again the the, the, the title of the book um and just a kind of a, a 30 seconds on, on on why people should get it immediately the book is called gangsters versus nazis and everybody needs to read it because I think over the years we've forgotten about the horrors of fascism. And when we see it, we should not be afraid to punch it in the nose. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah. I just uh, I think that the punching Nazis in the face. Uh, and like you say, it took three words to sell this book to your publisher. And that, that happened for a reason. Uh, the book will be available in our online bookstore. Do buy it from us and not from Amazon. Otherwise, you make Zach angry and you don't want to see Zach angry. Uh, because if you buy it from us uh, via that bookstore, you support independent booksellers, you support the author and you support History Hack as well. Uh, Michael, thank you so much. This has been brilliant. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Take care now. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.